it. It is wrong. All right, now that's better. Listen, this is not the way of it. All that shouting, all that noise. No, that's not the way America's revolution begins. It begins with talk. Words of ridicule for all the colonists by members of King George's court. Yankee Doodle came to town for to buy a firelock. We will tar and feather him, and so we will John Hancock. Lots of talk. Words of anger and contempt in England's parliament. You may be assured that we who sit on the benches in the House of Commons have listened most carefully and attentively to the speeches of our colleague, Mr. Edmund Burke, as they pertain to our colonies in America. As I say, we have listened carefully. Though, quite frankly, Mr. Burke is an atrocious speaker. Atrocious. But I am happy to report that most of us have not taken leave of our senses concerning the American colonies. We are in full accord with Lord North and feel that the colonists are, are acting like naughty children and must be chastised, taken over the knee and spanked. The American colonists have something to say in reply. More talk. Words of indignation by Sam Adams. Parliament couldn't enforce the Sugar Act. They couldn't make the Stamp Act work. So now they have a new trick. The Quartering Act. Do you know what the Quartering Act means? It orders us to provide food, lodging, candles, fuel, blankets... And in Virginia, Patrick Henry has a few words to say. As for me, give me liberty or give me death. Strong words, all of them. And they are not ignored by the mother country. England backs up her repressive laws with force. Boston is occupied by four British regiments under command of Governor General Thomas Gage. All through the early spring of 1775, tension between the British and the colonists mounts until now. The time has come. The time for talk is over. Now you can shout. insane shouting. Some of us are finding it difficult to sleep with all that noise. Noise? You'll have noise enough before long. The regulars are coming out. Oh, merciful heavens. Alarm! The red coats are coming. A hurry of hoofs in a village street. A shape in the moonlight. A bulk in the dark. And beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. Alarm! The redcoats are coming! Why are the redcoats coming? Because British General Gage knows that the colonials have arms and ammunition hidden in a little town just north of Boston, a town called Concord. On their way to Concord, the British troops must pass through another town, Lexington. 700 grenadiers and infantrymen of the finest army in the civilized world march into Lexington. Standing on the common, waiting for them, a group of untrained, undisciplined Minutemen. Now, now it begins. In the skirmish at Lexington, the British killed eight Minutemen and wounded ten others. Only one British soldier was slightly wounded. After it was over, the troops reformed their ranks, fired a volley to celebrate their victory, and marched on to Concord. After the British had begun their march to Concord, I returned to the common and found Robert and Jonas lying dead, and the other dead and wounded. I assisted in carrying the dead into the meeting house. I then proceeded toward Concord with my gun. At Concord's North Bridge, the British meet their first strong resistance. The embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. 
In the first exchange of gunfire at Concord, three British pilots fall dead. Nine others are wounded. The British fall back and begin a slow, painful retreat to Boston. To General Thomas Gage, from his obedient servant, Lord Percy. I have changed my opinion that Americans are timid cowards. For my part, I never believed, I confess, that they would attack the king's troops. They came 3,000 miles and died to keep the past upon its throne, unheard beyond the ocean tide. Their English mother made her moan. Following the actions at Lexington and Concord, the rebel leaders in America lose no time in recruiting an army of their own. recruits point in the general direction of that barn. No, no, no. That barn right over there. Present. Give fire. In June, 500 members of this rebel army occupy Breed's Hill overlooking Boston Harbor and dig in. The following morning, the American fortifications are spotted and the British attack. It was... It was like pushing a wax candle against a red-hot plate. The head of our British column simply melted away. When finally we took the hill, the Americans made a fighting retreat. Like veteran troops, they carried off their wounded and fought us from one fence to another. In all, we lost over 1,000 men. But the victory was ours. Hmm. Another British victory like that. And England may soon lose the war. These people show a spirit and conduct against us they never showed against the French. They are now spirited up by a rage and enthusiasm as great as ever people were possessed of. And you must proceed in earnest or give the business up. the king. Britain will not give up the colonies which she has planted with great tenderness, encouraged with commercial advantages, and protected at much expense of blood and treasure. When the unhappy and deluded multitude shall become sensible of their error, I shall be ready to receive the misled with tenderness and mercy. While His Majesty addresses Parliament, the unhappy and deluded multitude in America is having problems. A militiaman speaks. Uh, we're well into snipe and fight, but don't hanker to stand to the lobster back's 14-inch bayonet, which he uses as well as I do my farm site. We join militias and home guards, but want no part of an American Continental Army. Who'd lead us anyway? In Philadelphia, the members of the Continental Congress discuss the same question. Order! Order, gentlemen! Allow John Adams to continue. Thank you, Mr. Hancock. So, I suggest as Commander-in-Chief of our Continental Army, George Washington of Virginia. A master stroke. A northerner nominates a southerner. That will bring us together. Cohesive! Cohesive! 
Washington proceeds immediately to Boston to take up his command. But British reinforcements reach there first. Aboard His Majesty's ship Cerberus, the colonists behold three new British generals. Behold the Cerberus, the Atlantic plow, her precious cargo, Burgoyne, Clinton, Howe. Bow, wow, wow. And now it's time for Washington's first major test as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. He undertakes the hazardous defense of New York. Among the defenders are many new recruits, old men and young boys. Two of them have just finished digging fortifications on the riverbank. Together, they look out over the water as the enemy arrives. There's four ships. Can you make out the name on the backside of that big one? You don't call a ship's rear a backside. It's her stern. She's mighty cocky sitting so close to shore just like she owned the world. The English practically do. Can you read the gold lettering? It's bright enough, can't you? Can't read. It says Phoenix. Looks like about a 44-gun man-of-war. How old are you? Fifteen. I'm 18. How come you're bigger than me? Hey, look. Boats coming toward us. Boats and barges. Oh, sure, a pretty sight. See how they sparkle with all them bayonets and swords and Hessian helmets. Hessian? German mercenaries. King George pays them to fight for him. They're the ones in blue. Like flowers. Like our pasture in spring. All yellow and blue. What's that? The big ships have opened fire. On us? What do we do? Where are the officers? Don't know. Let's go look for them. We can't leave our post. Good luck, friend. I'm going to go look for the officers. Goodbye to you. Wait for me. I'll help you look. Hold. Stop. Return to line. Major, stop those men. Back, you cowards. General Washington, even the officers are running. It's folly to remain. The cannons are overwhelming. What manner of men are these? They are not soldiers. I beg you, sir, come away. Your life is in danger. Of course our lives are in danger. This is not a parade. This is war. It was a rout, and New York was given up to the British. What manner of men are these? asked Washington. Well, they were English, Irish, German, Scotch, African, Welsh, Dutch, Spanish. French. There were wagon drivers, farmers, scriveners, fur trappers, students. But what manner of men are these? Keep still, said the thrush, as she nestled her young in a nest by the road. For the tyrants are near, and with them appear what bodes us no good, what bodes us no good. If it please, my lord, I have papers taken from the person of this prisoner. Apparent plans of fortification... Given to Captain Montresor here. He is chief of Royal Engineers. They should hold a special interest for him. The captain. Thank you, Lieutenant. Now then, Lieutenant. What of this man standing before us? Sir, he professes to be a Dutch schoolteacher. By your leave, sir, a flimsy attempt at disguise. Mm, likely one of the incendiary beggars who came skulking back and succeeded in burning a third of New York after we took it from Mr. Washington the other day. Mark you this, my lord. His renderings of royal fortifications are quite accurate. Drawings of your brother, Vice Admiral Howe's fleet in Huntington Bay. Mm, well, spy, what was your mission? I need only give my name, Nathan Hale. And say that I am a captain in the Continental Army attached to Colonel Thomas Knowlton's Rangers. Oh, indeed. This man is obviously a seditionist, a rebel, a spy. Tell the provost officer to set a gallows in Artillery Square and hang this man tomorrow at first instant. Does the spy have any further utterances? I have a regret. I should think so. I only regret... I have but one life to lose for my country. What manner of men are these? The British aboard His Majesty's 64-gun flagship Eagle, anchored in New York Bay, find out. Watch, on the lee side. You hear a sound? 
Look over the side. Shine your lantern. What do you see? I see nothing, sir. I saw there's something. There's a turtle. A turtle? Impossible, sailor. No reptiles that size in New York rivers. It's quite too large even for a sea turtle. Look, yes, sir. It just laid an egg. You're over your rum ration. I'll have you up for this. Oh, the heavens, it is shaped like an egg. Would you say a 50-pound egg, sir? This marked the first submarine attack in history. Sergeant Ezra Lee, crew of one, surfaced, having made an unsuccessful attempt to attach the egg, a bomb made of oak filled with gunpowder. Still, the egg did not detonate, and Lee propelled his craft away from the eagle. The turtle was last seen helping to sow kegs of powder and terror among the British ships. Washington finally wins one. In a surprise maneuver, he crosses the Delaware River and defeats Colonel Von Rall and his Hessian garrison at Trenton. Washington does it again. Victory at Princeton. These two actions are life-giving to the sagging American cause. The British grip begins to weaken a bit. British generals Cornwallis and Burgoyne talk things over. Up to this point, we have had no overall strategy, and Washington has had even less. All the colonies need do is hold on, stay united, and bleed England. More port? Yes, thank you. Another walnut? Mm, thank you. You know, Burgoyne, our best hope is to divide the rebels, to drive a wedge between them, and then... Crush the North and the South separately. Burgoyne is dispatched to Canada, from where he will begin his campaign to split New England from the rest of the country. Meanwhile, British General Howe withdraws from New York and heads for Philadelphia, hoping to capture the Continental Congress in session there. Washington tries to stop him at a place called Brandywine Creek. Isn't it a lovelier name? The stream flows just past my door. Brandywine. It's as melodious as Susquehanna, as Shenandoah, as Tennessee. Washington is defeated at Brandywine and makes another stand at Germantown in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Again, he is defeated. Howe takes Philadelphia, and Washington takes his ragged army, or what's left of it, to Valley Forge for the winter. But all is not defeat for the Americans. Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne is running into trouble in the upper Hudson River Valley and has good reason to echo Washington's words, What manner of men are these? A lieutenant of the 20th Lancashire's. I confess that it pleased all of us to be on the attack after our slow, grueling march down the river from Canada. An undetermined force of Americans under Gates had picked a spot called Freeman's Farm to make their stand. As we advanced across the open ground, there were no rebels in sight. But then, from the southern woods came the sound of turkeys. It sounded as if the woods were alive with hundreds of wild turkeys all gobbling at one another. Undoubtedly, it was a signal being used by... And then we saw them. The Americans. Our first picket line was getting close. And then we could see many, many Americans coming to the edge of the woods, raising their weapons. Burgoyne's attacks at Freeman's Farm were repulsed by American sharpshooters. His defeated army retreats to the nearby village of Saratoga, where they surrender. For the first time, the British see their enemy up close. What manner of men are these? Line after endless line of Americans. Old men, young boys. There were Negroes standing in rank as free men. But one thing over all was notable. There was no jeering from them. There was silence as we marched past. Silence except for the wail of our fife. Valley Forge. Winter, 1777-78.
20 miles from Philadelphia, the main army of the United States under command of General George Washington starves and freezes. In early May of 1778, the winter's hardships are almost forgotten as some joyous news reaches Valley Forge three months late. Louis XVI of France has recognized the United States as an independent republic and has pledged full military support to the new nation. Whoopee! Lafayette's bringing a French army here to help us. Uh, here's to that boy of yours, Lafayette. Ah, Marie. Marie? His full name is Marie-Joseph-Paul-Yves-Roche-Gilbert-Dumotier, Marquis de Lafayette. Yeah? Well, what do you call him for short? The British Army, under command of Lord Cornwallis, runs into trouble in Virginia. Cornwallis reached for the southern plum, and it appears burnt his pretty thumb, dum-de-dum. Cornwallis and his army are trapped at Yorktown by a combined American and French force. The siege begins. Now, now let's hear the noise. A little British drummer boy climbs a parapet and beats a parley. The British are ready to ask for terms of surrender. I have the mortification to inform your excellency that I have been forced to give up the posts of York and Gloucester and to surrender the troops under my command by capitulation on the 19th instant as prisoners of war to the combined forces of America and France. Congratulations, General Washington. We've won. We've won. Congratulations, mon cher général. My brave fellows, let no shouting, no clamorous huzzahing increase their mortification. It's sufficient to us that we witness their humiliation. Posterity will huzzah for us. And so the long ordeal is over. The new United States of America have won their independence. My brave fellows, let no shouting, no clamorous huzzahing increase their mortification. Posterity will huzzah for us. has been another program in the series Our Nation's Heritage produced and presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company of California. Signatures of the Declaration of Independence John Hancock John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. One thing you should remember, my friends, we could all easily have been hanged. Traitors, every one of us. Just suppose George Washington hadn't won the battle at Yorktown. Well, there we'd have been, standing with bowed heads before some British judge. In the name of His Majesty, George Third. I sentence thee, John Hancock, thee, Thomas Jefferson, thee, John Adams. And even myself, an old man, harmless enough. Thee, Benjamin Franklin. You'd think the cheering might have been a little more restrained. Well... Long before Yorktown, back in the middle of 1776, there we were, the delegates to the Second Continental Congress. Rebels with prices on our heads. The king had already offered a 500-pound reward for the arrest of John Hancock, who presided over our Congress. And that July, things looked very bleak indeed. Well, here we are in this white-paneled room, and here's where we've sat day after day, month after month, sharing the heat and the flies and the anxiety, especially these flies. There's a livery stable across the street, you know. 
And the horseflies in here are as big as tigers and just as ferocious. So, what are we doing here in Philadelphia, this half hundred troubled homesick men? <coughs> Arguing mostly. We argue over just about anything that comes up. Oh, I surprise them by keeping silent most of the time. I've done my arguing in my time, done my tasks, made my points. I'm the oldest here, of course, a little over 70. And most of them are young. Why, Ned Rutledge there is only 26. So they're young and fond of making points no matter how tedious. I let them ramble on and on. In fact, most of the time they think I'm asleep, but I'm not. Just letting them run out of steam, run out of words. I often marvel at their energy, considering the heat. Tom, what does thy thermometer say there? 76 degrees, Ben. Tom Jefferson sits next to me here at the back of the room, where we can see everything that goes on from the most interesting angle of all. He's the one young man as silent as I. So we all sit here consigning armies we do not have, paying with money we have yet to print, improvising, worrying, and mostly arguing. And we must listen to the dispatches that come to us from the commander-in-chief of our Continental Army. George sends us the most mournful dispatches. I just now received an express from an officer appointed to keep a lookout on Staten Island that 45 British ships arrived today. Some say more, and I suppose the whole British fleet will be here within a day or two. I am hopeful before they are prepared to attack that I shall get some reinforcements. Your obedient servant, G. Washington. Did you ever hear anything so depressing? John Adams himself went and took a look at our army at Crown Point. An object of wretchedness to fill the humane mind with horror. Disgraced, defeated, discontented, diseased, naked, undisciplined, eaten up with vermin. No clothes, beds, blankets, no medicine. No victuals but salt, pork, and flour. And then, you see, not only do we have the reverses of war to contend with, we by no means have unanimous support among the people. Many colonists prefer to stay under the power of old King George than risk the, the untried perils of democracy. They are not always gracious in expressing themselves. If I must be devoured, let me be devoured by the jaws of a lion and not gnawed to death by rats and vermin. Rats and vermin. Ah, well, so our Continental Army is in trouble in battle and we are in trouble at home. And sometimes the battlefield and home are one and the same. For instance... In June of last year, John Adams received letters from his Abigail home in Braintree, telling of the storming of Bunker Hill. How many have fallen, we know not. The constant roar of cannon is so distressing, we cannot eat, drink, or sleep. I went to bed after twelve, but got no rest. The cannon continued firing, and my heart beat pace with them all night. I shall tarry here till it is thought unsafe by my friends. Poor John. His farm is failing. He's left a good law practice to come join our rebel Congress. And worse than that, he's left Abigail and he misses her sorely. No wonder he's often rude and cantankerous. Being of staunch Puritan stock, you know, he can take out his loneliness in only one way. Work and devotion to duty. He's rather irritating about it. I know. In fact, I know myself that I am an object of nearly universal detestation. Nonsense. It isn't as bad as all that. Many of us have great affection for John, but it isn't easy. He's always an honest man, often a wise one. But sometimes, and in some things, he is absolutely out of his senses. <laughs> well, never mind. Loneliness and anxiety do uncomfortable things to men. Look at young Tom Jefferson here, anxious about his ailing wife. Many of our company have personal problems to bear. Morris with his asthma. Caesar Rodney with a great cancer eating into his cheek. He'd planned to go to London for treatment. Well, he's changed his plans and without a murmur. Just so he could join us in this hot room full of flies. But now, early in July, the arguments have dwindled to a single issue. Independence. Virginia's Richard Henry Lee offered a resolution for independence last month. 
that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them... Now the, the thing is coming up for a vote. Is and ought to At be last. Totally dissolved. And it's still not clear if the resolution will carry. What do you say, Ben? Well, this Congress is an interesting batch of humanity. Young Hopkinson sitting there surviving the tedious debates by doodling caricatures. Abraham Clark with those great heavy eyebrows. Gary with his stammer. And all of us linked together in a sense, imprisoned in this room, sharing the anxiety. Anxiety about our homes and our families, our army and our friends in battle. Yes, we've come to know each other, sometimes too intimately, if truth be told. For instance, I've known John Dickinson for years and count him as my friend. So it is with some pain I see him struggling against us in our desire to adopt the resolution of independence. He just cannot seem to take that final step. What prevents him, Ben, is the timidity of an overgrown fortune. Oh, John, you are harsh. Dickinson is a good and conscientious man. Your friend Dickinson may kill the resolution once and for all. Look there, why, he even has notes. No one uses notes for speeches in this Congress, thank God. Hush, Gentlemen, John. Gentlemen, will our people at home not complain against our rashness? Declaring our independence at a time like this is like destroying our house in winter before we have got another. They will ask, why did we not wait until we were better prepared? Yes, Dickinson nearly killed independence that day, right, Tom? He might have if John hadn't answered him. But how reluctant he was to go over all the arguments again. Well, we had certainly heard them often enough. And at such length... But the New Jersey delegation insisted, so John got up and started to speak. Now, you'll admit with me, Ben, that John Adams was neither graceful nor eloquent, nor remarkably fluent, but he came out occasionally with a power of thought and expression that moved us from our seats, and so it was that day. Thank you, gentlemen. I can't remember a word I said. Pity. I do remember I wished at that moment that I had great gifts of oratory. But, well, I did what I could. I'm sure it was an idle misspense of time. Come, John, you know it was not that. I do wish someone had remembered the speech. It's almost the only one I ever made that I wish was literally preserved. Well, when you finished speaking and Mr. Alsop of New York was still not convinced we were ripe for independence, the good Reverend Witherspoon suddenly boomed out, We're more than ripe for it, and some are in danger of rotting for the want of it. Well, besides the speeches and the tempers, one episode of high drama... Rodney's ride, you mean, Ben? Yes. He'd been off looking into a loyalist uprising when word reached him that the vote on the independence resolution was about to be taken. He swung onto his horse and he set off on an 80-mile race against time. Explain about the Delaware delegation. Yes. You see, there were three on the Delaware delegation. Himself... Tom McKeon, who favored independence, and George Reed, who did not. Well, Rodney knew he had to get there in time to vote with McKean to make it two to one. In that way, Delaware as a whole would vote aye for independence. So, there was Rodney, racing toward Philadelphia. A storm came up to make matters worse. He and his horse were blinded by rain, and the thunderclouds made it dark even before nightfall. Now, remember what the roads were like then. Rutted and rocky, potholes big enough to wreck a carriage, and a thick layer of mud over it all, hiding whatever hazards there might be. At any stride, Rodney's horse could have stumbled and ended the race once and for all. Well, Caesar Rodney is a strange man. He rides on through the thunder and the rain all night and all next day. And finally, when we've given up hope and the vote's about to be taken without him, he comes riding up to the state house and enters the room there, mud from head to foot, his spurs clanking. A strange man, a strange sight. He stands there for a moment in the doorway, catching his breath. The Delaware delegation will now be polled. George Reed, how say ye? Nay. Thomas McKean, how say ye? Aye, for independence. Caesar Rodney, how say ye? I say aye. Aye, for independence. The Delaware delegation votes aye for independence. Yes. 
So the thing finally passed. As John said, the die was cast. Sink or swim, we were committed to independence July 2nd, 1776. Well, then we got to the matter of a formal declaration. We didn't really need one, that is, the resolution did the deed, but we felt... How did you put it, Tom? We wanted to place before mankind the common sense of the subject, to command their assent and to justify ourselves. So they chose five of us for the committee to draw it up. The three of us and Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston. Actually, we'd been at it since June 11th. That is, Tom Jefferson had been at it. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary... You must admit, John, that Tom was by far the best writer of us all. He did have a peculiar felicity of expression. His felicity of expression wasn't as peculiar as his spelling, but we won't go into that. ...of nature's God entitled them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the change. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Tom, instead of sacred and undeniable, try uh, self-evident. Hmm. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and independent. All men are created equal and independent. Tom tried to drive this home a little further on in a clause that threatened to cost us our unity when it went before Congress, as you shall see. But now it was still being passed around among us five. Tom himself did most of the rewriting. In the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station... I remember Roger Sherman with his shrewd dark eyes and his plain dark dress, not a button more than necessary, reading it over. I tell you, gentlemen, I have read the declaration and find it pleasing. Economy of expression, felicity of feeling. I have nothing to add and nothing to subtract. I shall leave it to the eager editors in Congress to mangle your document, Thomas. And mangled it they did. Poor Tom sat there listening to them tear it apart. He never said a word, of course, for it wouldn't have been becoming. But I knew he was in an agony. Not that he was a vain man, you know. Not that he thought his words were inviolate. But they had come from the center of him, so to speak. And his colleagues might as well have been editing his heartbeat. The one change in the declaration that was most painful to him, of course, was his slavery clause. Many of us had long wanted abolition of slavery. For instance, I happened to be president of the first Pennsylvania society formed for that purpose. And in Tom's Virginia, the House of Burgesses had tried to pass resolutions condemning slavery, but King George had either ignored or vetoed every one of them. And then, just recently, the king had been urging slaves in the colonies to rise up against their masters who were fighting for independence. So Tom put it all in there. The king has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has... Tom had capitalized men. Capital M, capital E, capital N, for slaves are men, not property, not cattle, not some blurred figures we don't need quite to recognize, but men. And they were created equal. Well, the objections were fierce. Edward Rutledge of South Carolina... The wisdom of slavery should be determined by the states themselves. But the question concerns not only the importing states, it concerns the whole proposed union. 
What enriches a part enriches the whole. But slavery weakens rather than strengthens a country. It is dishonorable. The whole thing is inconsistent with our principles. But to condemn the trade at this time would be fatal to the interest of South Carolina. If the gentlemen from New England will consult their own interest, they will not oppose the importation of slaves. It will increase the traffic in which New England will become the chief carrier. Young Ned Rutledge... Young Ned Rutledge was a swallow, a sparrow, a peacock. Excessively vain, excessively weak, and excessively variable and unsteady. Jejun, inane, and puerile. Mm, no, you didn't like him a great deal, did you, John? But as long as South Carolina and Georgia objected so strenuously to the clause, there was nothing for it. We took it out. I can hear some of you saying a declaration of independence that wouldn't condemn slavery. What kind of a declaration of independence do you call that? Well, at least it didn't sanction slavery. But I must agree with you that by amputating that passage, it left the patient alive but somewhat crippled. That particular cut could be attributed to the unholy alliance of the Southern and the New England delegates, the former objecting because they lived with slavery, the latter because so many respectable New England fortunes had been founded, at least in part, on the slave trade. In any case, the slavery clause was cut. Yes, what a stupendous, what an incomprehensible machine is man. He can endure toil, famine, stripes, imprisonment, and death itself in vindication of his own liberty, and the next moment be deaf to all those motives whose power supported him through his trial and inflict on his fellow men a bondage which he rose in rebellion to oppose. Well, when you assemble a number of men to have the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably assemble with those men all their prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. So we found ourselves omitting this and that. The reference to Scotch mercenaries was offensive to those who still had the thick burr of Scotland on their tongues, for instance, and so it went. On the whole, Tom, I think the declaration was improved by the cuts. What the gentlemen of Congress did, I suggest, was to pare it down to pure Jefferson. Jefferson at his best. <laughs> Still trying to cheer me up, are you, Ben? I suspect you may be right at that. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the... So that was how it was. We passed the resolution of independence on July 2nd, we accepted the Declaration of Independence on July 4th. It was read and proclaimed throughout the land, and we formally signed the parchment on August 2nd. At the time, John Hancock said, We must be unanimous. There must be no pulling different ways. We must all hang together. And I said, yes, we must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly we would all hang separately. <laughs> and old Stephen Hopkins said, you can see his wobbly signature there at the right. He said, my hands may tremble, but my heart does not. And so the deed was done. This declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The signatures of the Declaration of Independence. John Morton. He died first. Button Gwinnett. Fell in a duel within a year. Thomas Lynch, Jr. Signed at 27, lost at sea at 30. Richard Stockton. Captured by the British, cruelly beaten and soon dead. John Hart. Farm laid waste, victim of manhunt, soon dead. Francis Hopkinson. Home looted by Hessians. Benjamin Rush. James Wilson. William Floyd. Ah, so we Arthur pledged our lives Hilton. and our fortunes and many lost boats. We were all soon dead anyway, of course, Lyman by the way of things. 
But what about our sacred honor? They say that after we signed the parchment, we applauded. Only ourselves in the room there, and we applauded. I won't say whether we did or not. That's one of history's secrets, and surely not a very important one. But if we did applaud, what do you think, John? What do you think, Tom? Were we not right to do so? Robert Treat Payne, William Ellery, William Williams, Oliver Walcott, Philip Livingston, Francis Lewis, Robert been another program in the series Our Nation's Heritage, produced and presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company of California. Now, what do revolutionaries do when they win, huh? When the blood has sunk into the fields and been washed from the streets, when the old flag's been torn down, the old ties broken, the old system thrown away, then how do they get down to the business of making it all worth it? Well, in 1787, we delegates were called again to Philadelphia. Some of us were not overjoyed. Uh, another convention... But it may well be harvest time before I get home. With Sarah, not well. Sometimes I'm afraid she won't see Autumn to leave at such a time. Four hundred miles away? Over those roads? It will wipe out what little savings we have. Philadelphia, all very cultured, but also so expensive. Oh, William, your law practice, just picking up. Not another summer in Philadelphia. Oh, it'll be belly deep in mud now with all that rain, but once the summer comes, that'll be even worse. All heat and sweat and no escape. Shut the windows and suffocate or open them and invite the flies in. Another convention and in Philadelphia in the summer. No, there was not an eager scampering to Philadelphia. In fact, I didn't look forward to it, though I lived right there. What with my gout and my stones and my 81 years... And imagine this, my friends. Old Ben Franklin being carried to and fro in a sedan chair by four nice husky lads. Prisoners from the jail across the way. Their language was not always the prettiest, but their backs were strong and they tried to keep the going smooth for me. But it was a painful trip each time, nevertheless. No, we were not eager. Washington himself was reluctant to come. Mount Vernon wasn't doing too well. He was experimenting with crop rotation, I remember, and, well, he just didn't want to leave home. But with Tom Jefferson in Paris and John Adams in London, he knew how important it was for him to be there. And he knew well enough the predicament the nation was in. Weak at home and disregarded abroad is our present condition, and contemptible enough it is. George always did look on the gloomy side of things, but there's no denying that we were headed for trouble. There we were, a little string of states along one edge of the continent, squabbling, feeble, making the kind of arrogant hullabaloo of a featherless chick just hatched. Many problems. Our currency was in a terrible muddle, with paper money peeling off as worthless as so many dead leaves. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Uh, farmers sunk in debt were being thrown into debtors' prisons, and some of them, like Daniel Shays, were engaged in open rebellion. And there was no real spirit of cooperation between the states, you know. Why, New Hampshire hadn't paid a shilling toward the war debt since peace. No, we needed machinery for the protection of that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness we talked about ten years before. In short, we needed a constitution. So we gave up our comforts and our private tasks and... Oh, I really think someone else should tell this tale. I, I really don't feel fit. Well, who shall it be? Young Alexander Hamilton? If it hadn't been for him, there might not have been a convention. But he'd tell you that we were all fools not to have an elective monarchy and a house of lords, if you please. No. George Washington, of course, was president of the convention, and no one better to tell you what went on there in our familiar east room in the old brick state house. He showed up every day, he and Jimmy. But George dislikes speaking in public, so I think we'll spare him this. Now, who else? Well, now there's Governor Morris, a good talker, but that's the trouble. He'd talk you blue. Talked all through the convention. I don't suppose he stopped talking yet. No, I think Jemmy here is the best. James Madison. He took it all, you know. And his heart was for the nation long before we met that May. Besides, though he was only 36, he's been called the father of the Constitution. You could say that Daniel Shays was the real father of the Constitution. Daniel Shays, the man who led that rebellion of angry, impoverished farmers in Massachusetts. They scared the delegates right into a constitutional mood. Revolutionaries, we all were. But we didn't want anarchy, and we didn't want more bloodshed. Tom Jefferson didn't seem to be too frightened by Shays' rebellion, if I remember correctly. What was it you said, Tom? I said, God forbid we should every 20 years be without such a rebellion. What signify a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. Yes, well, you were a good few miles away in Paris at the time. Excuse me, but do you think all this is relevant to today? What Washington was like and what Jefferson said and all that? I mean, this is the 20th century, man. Relevant? Why, it would seem to me that everything is somehow relevant to everything else in this universe of ours. But directly relevant? I don't know. Maybe not what we said to each other or what we thought during that tedious, hot Philadelphia summer. But surely what we did there is relevant to your everyday. That's what made the thing so difficult. Why, there we were, crouching timidly on the edge of a wilderness with one foot still in the sea. Just three and a half million people. And we there at the convention were to design a constitution that would work in the future. In an America of which we none of us could have a clear idea. We each had his guess, his fantasy. But how could any of us have envisioned, well, everything that was to come? You didn't even include a Bill of Rights. That had to be added when the first Congress met. The Bill of Rights? Yes, Tom Jefferson was greatly disturbed when he saw the Constitution had no Bill of Rights. I'd sent a copy of the Constitution to Tom in France, and he let me know right away what he liked and what he didn't like. I will tell you now what I do not like. First, the omission of a Bill of Rights, providing clearly for freedom of religion, freedom of the press, protection against standing armies, and trials by jury. Let me add that a Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth, and what no just government should refuse. But those of us sitting there around our green baize tables just six years after Yorktown, we thought those things were so obvious. What we had fought for, what every man knew and would uphold. Yes, I suppose we were naive. We the people, we said, not anticipating that the people might want to break into a fellow citizen's home, or censor the press, or keep a man rotting in jail. We thought the people would naturally prevent these things. We wanted all power to go to the people. Huh? Did I hear you say power to the people? It starts out, you know, we the people of the United States. We the people? Which people? We the white people is what you meant, wasn't it? 
Not blacks or Indians Just a or... minute, please. We the white male people is what they meant. Blacks and Indians, as long as they were male, were voting long before women. Which blacks? And which Indians? There are blacks and Indians who still don't have the vote. I know. But you must see that women have been discriminated against in ways that you haven't even heard of. To make it clear, to make it clear, let's say they meant we the white male people over 21, shall we? Granted, granted, but you see the machinery was there. And one of the first acts of the first Congress was to add a Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution. Jimmy's right, the machinery was there. So that, for example, the 15th and 19th Amendments could happen without tearing the country apart. Sure, the 15th Amendment could happen without tearing things apart. Sure. The right of citizens to vote shall not be denied or abridged on account of race or color. Sure, it didn't tear the country apart when it was adopted in 1870 because it wasn't enforced. Many of the delegates at the Constitutional Convention were bitterly opposed to slavery. But what did they do about it? We argued. We fought. We compromised. Compromised? You must realize that the document we produced was a bundle of compromises. I doubt that a single delegate went away from Philadelphia fully satisfied with what we ended up with. But we were trying to preserve the Union. And please don't forget that we were all worrying about getting the document approved by the states. But as you say, we didn't end up doing much toward the abolition of slavery. The better thing is... You even gave slaveholders more men in Congress. We were counted in when it came to figuring their representation, but counted out when it came to voting. In those days, one of us counted as three-fifths of a man. Yes, it was the same problem as ten years before, when we had to strike the slavery clause out of the Declaration of Independence. And another Rutledge gave us the word. That time, it was Edward Rutledge of South Carolina. This time, it was his older brother, John Rutledge. Religion and humanity. Religion and humanity have nothing to do with this question. Interest alone is the governing principle with nations. The true question at present is whether the southern states shall or shall not be parties to the Union. Slavery, sir, is in no one's interest. The present question concerns... This not is George Mason alone, from Virginia. The whole union. He's a slave owner himself. What an ardent abolitionist. The poor despise labor when performed by slaves, and every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven on a country. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. The true question is whether the southern states shall or shall not be parties to the Union. So we postponed the question once again. A fatal postponement, perhaps. America has paid for that mistake. Correction, sir. We are still paying the price for that mistake. Yes, you're right. George Mason's prediction came true. We thought, though, we were settling the state's rights issue at the same time, but of course that cropped up again and again until it almost blew America apart in the Civil War. Well, so we left many things undone, perhaps. But we did make a nation. Why, just imagine what it might be like if we hadn't succeeded. Look at that lineup of cars at the border, Harry. We'll never get back to Portland in time for dinner. I don't know why we ever go to Olympia. It's just not worth it to leave Oregon. Mm, now where's my passport? Customs is going to take us all night. Hello? But, operator... No, operator, I don't have any Nevada coins. All I have is Utah money, and I ran out of gas here on the highway, and... Well, you just got to let me make this call home or else they'll be wondering what happened to me. The dangerous alliance between Kansas and Nebraska can only encourage neighboring states to make treaties of their own and seek a balance of power by creating... In this 16th month of the war between California and Arizona, the troops who are bivouacked in the Imperial Valley continue to... The New Jersey Navy 
has successfully blockaded the ships of New York in the Hudson River, but the main army of New York is now proceeding through Connecticut. But most important of all, we at the Constitutional Convention provided for elected representation. No matter what you may think about our we the people. Yes, my friends, otherwise you might have had something like this. It's a beautiful day, a magnificent day here in Washington Square. All the crowned heads of Europe and, of course, all the nobility of America are gathered for this final ceremony. The coronation of King George the Tenth of America. Oh, oh, I see the Count of Monticello arriving now, just stepping out of his helicopter on the palace lawn. Oh, and here comes the Duke of Braintree, together with the beautiful Duchess. And while we're dealing here with what might have been... Imagine what it would be like without a Bill of Rights. Listen, these are the sounds you could hear around the world any night. A home, people sleeping, and then shadows of men approaching the house, government police. Oh, it's the police. The Fourth Amendment is meant to see that that doesn't happen in America. It happens here. It happens in every ghetto from Harlem to Watts. Yes, I know, but that's not the fault of the... <laughs> that's not the fault of the Constitution. You mean that, according to the Constitution, breaking down of the door by the police is not supposed to happen here? That's what we mean. What does it matter whether or not it's supposed to happen when it does happen? What does it matter? I suppose not much if it's your door. But there is machinery. There are courts... The Constitution says... The Constitution says a lot of things, but it doesn't keep us from getting our heads busted. No piece of paper could do that, my young friend. The laws are there. If people break the laws or if police break the laws... Look here, I've listened to all this, and I say the police don't have enough power. Why, the Supreme Court has handcuffed the police. Criminals are getting off scot-free. I say we've got to take another look at your precious Bill of Rights. Well, you know, we weren't entirely blind to what might happen in this country. But you don't understand. These are critical times and call for strong measures. Admittedly, we couldn't foresee the future back then. But we did realize that there would be times such as these seem to be when certain conditions in the country might appear to justify the abridgment of liberty. We felt, though, that the Bill of Rights would protect you against such an abridgment. Yeah, but even if the Bill of Rights were always enforced, there's so many other things wrong. Yes, like having our boys imprisoned because they refuse to fight in wars they believe are wrong. Or being the richest nation on earth, and still we have children starving in Mississippi and Appalachia. And we still have that hydrogen bomb hanging over our heads. And other horrendous weapons like nerve gas germ warfare. And our children are choking on the air in the cities. And in the waters off the coast, the seals are dying. Pelicans are dying. Why, even the coral in the sea is dying. And from both the extreme right and the extreme left, we have insane violence. Half the people of this country hate the lifestyle of the other half, and vice versa. There are so many things out of control. Great destructive forces rolling along without anything to stop them. Dear, dear, I see what you mean. Back in my time, people just used to worry about West Philadelphia. And yet, my friends, are there not also many things that are good in this land? Yes, but we've got to control technology. Once it was just the kite and the key. We've got to preserve the wilderness. Once we had to conquer it. And we've got to do all this before it's too late. Yes, I see. I see. But in the meantime, look to the rights of men, even those with whom you disagree especially those with whom you disagree. The rights of men have at times been imperfectly guarded here in America, it's true. But the ideal is there. The premise still holds. Whatever happens, whatever you do with our America now that she's in your hands, take care. For spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain, America, America, God shed His grace on. 
This has been another program in the series Our Nation's Heritage, produced and presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company of California.